it is time to begin. Good evening. Welcome back, everybody. Hope everybody's had a good afternoon. And I don't have any updates. Just one reminder about uh, next Sunday, uh, the evening service <coughs> be at 2 o'clock for the, uh, the third Sunday singing. But like I said, I don't have any updates other than that, so we'll be ready to get started. First song tonight will be number 717. Number 717. We'll sing all three verses of this song, please. <clears throat> I heard an old, old story How a Savior came from glory How he gave his life on Calvary To save a wretch like me precious blood's atoning. Then I repented of my sins and won the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me Jesus, my Savior. 
beneath the cleansing flood. Our next song will be number 138. Number 138. We'll sing the first, second, and fourth verses, please. Tempted and tried, where oft made to wonder why it should be thus all the day long, while there are others living about us. Reading comes from Acts 18, verse 5. 
When Silas and Timothy were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit, testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. Please stand for prayer. Would you pray with me, please? Our gracious and merciful Father in heaven, once again, Father, we're so very thankful for this day that you've given us. We're thankful, Father, that we've been blessed with another first day of the week and for these opportunities that we've been granted to assemble together here with these brothers and sisters in Christ, that we might study your divine and holy word and worship you, we pray, in spirit and in truth. And Father, we're so thankful that you have granted us the health that allows us to be here. Father, we know that there are many of our congregation here, many of our families, friends, and loved ones that are suffering from physical illness this day. Father, we pray that your richest blessings will be upon them. We pray, Father, that you'll grant them those blessings that you know they stand in need of. And Father, we pray that their health might be restored to them if it be your will. Father, we know that there are some who have been suffering from physical ailments of one kind or another that are doing better now. And Father, we pray that their recovery will continue. Father, we're so thankful for this nation in which we live. We're thankful, Father, that here we can assemble as we have without the fear of any official interference. And Father, we pray that that might always be the case. And Father, we're mindful of those that are willing to go into foreign lands to preach and teach the gospel. We know, Father, that, that many of them labor under difficult, very trying circumstances. And Father, we pray that you'll watch over them, that you'll protect them. And Father, we pray that much good may come from their efforts. Father, we're so thankful for this congregation of your people. We're thankful, Father, for the spirit of love and cooperation that exists here. And Father, we pray that you'll continue to bless us and help us always to be a beacon of truth in this community. And Father, we're thankful for Brother Randy. We're thankful, Father, for the work that he does here. We're thankful for his ability, and we're thankful, Father, for his willingness to stand before us and open your word to us. And Father, as he is about to present his lesson to us this afternoon, we pray that each one of us will put aside those distractions of the day that we'll listen with open minds and sincere hearts. And Father, we pray that if there be anyone here that needs to make a change in their life, that something in the word that's presented to us will help them to decide to make that change tonight. Father, we know that we have so very many things in this life to give thanks for. Every good thing that we have comes from you. But Father, especially are we thankful for Jesus the Christ. We're thankful, Father, for his willingness to come to this earth and die that shameful death upon the cross, that we, through obedience to his word, might have that hope of eternal life. And Father, we realize that as human beings, so often we come short of what's expected of us. Many times, Father, we do things that are not pleasing in your sight. And Father, we know that oftentimes we leave undone things that you would have us to do. And Father, we pray that as we truly repent of our sins that you'll forgive us. All of these things we ask through Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The song before the lesson tonight will be number 419. 
number 419. We'll sing all four verses of this song, please. Lord, we come before Thee now at Thy feet we invitation will be number 517 number 517 <laughs> number 517 isn't it exciting to be a Christian to appreciate as we sang just a moment ago victory in Jesus I believe all of us would say we enjoy being winners, we enjoy being the victor, being the triumphant one, and yet 1 John 5 verse 4 says that even your faith is that which overcometh the world. And so we sang about that, we sang about farther along, and then we sang, Lord, I come before thee now. All three of those songs had fantastic and superb messages, and they hopefully have prepared us, among other things, to enter into at least a few moments' study of some part of the Word of God. You can already see on the slide that we come to installment 11 tonight. Installment 11 of our study of the Holy Spirit. And perhaps in some means of relief, it's the last lesson of the series. I think I've said all that I can perhaps imagine to, to put into this. I know some of those lessons have been such that a fair amount of material has actually been in it. And maybe one could have actually developed a couple or more lessons out of them, but... I believe we've done at least an element in justice to what the Word of God has to say about the Holy Spirit. And so in 11 lessons, we'll draw that series to a close tonight. 
This slide, more than anything else, just highlights very briefly the major points of each one of the lessons. We began with an emphasis upon the person of the Holy Spirit, that it's not an it, it's a he, and we developed a bit about the personality that goes with him. And from there onward, we looked at a number of the facets and attributes, everything from his role in creation, his role in revelation, the consideration of the gift of the Holy Spirit, the understanding attached to the gifts attached to the work of the Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the fantastic appreciation of the conversion and the blasphemy attached to the Holy Spirit. And more recently, as you can well tell, those matters related to prayer. And tonight, what about the restraint? Now maybe that word by itself develops some questions. What is meant by the restraint of the Holy Spirit? Well, I hope you and I can do some element of justice to that tonight as we perhaps reflect on a few of the passages of the, Holy, uh, of the Word of God. But to do that, let's start like this. What do we mean by this word restraint? And in what way does the Word of God utilize the concept? Well, it all begins with this appreciation. The word restraint means much like what you and I would anticipate that it does. It has reference, as you can well tell, to something that some other being disallows, something that this other being does not permit, something that is thus placed off limits. You can't do this. Well, you and I remember the restraint maybe from our parents. When dad or mom would say, you cannot go tonight, maybe we asked for the car keys to go somewhere, or maybe we asked if we could go spend the night at a friend's house. And dad or mom would say, I'm sorry, not tonight. Well, that was the exertion of the restraint of parenthood. Well, so it is in that light. May we be quick to point out that this is a matter that there are many today would seemingly be quick to express. Maybe you have heard various and sundry preachers who would say that the Holy Spirit told me what to preach. From time to time on the radio, Denise and I have heard a gentleman who is very free in making the statement, I didn't decide what to preach until I got in this pulpit today and the Spirit gave me what to preach. Have you ever heard someone make that statement? As if this person made no other preparation, as if this person made no study of any kind from the Bible in preparation for the delivery of that message in, 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 the, in the course of the, of the church service, but rather depended on the Spirit overwhelming him, constraining him in such a way to give him the message at that moment. He is claiming the restraint of the Spirit in light of the delivery of that sermon. Such is a shameful testimony to anybody's approach, as we're about to learn tonight. But you might furthermore note this. There are times when those who make attention to that will claim it in such compelling fashion and claim it in such overwhelming fashion that they stir up others in light of it. They work a whole congregation of people into a frenzy in light of their claim, the Spirit has given me this message. Sounds somewhat like the Ray Stevens song, The Squirrel Got Loose in the Church. 
Now, it's not my intent to make light of anyone's sincerity. But as we're about to see tonight, the Bible doesn't teach this. It does not state that that's the course of action that any man should take. And any man who thinks that it does has no business in a pulpit. He has no business making claim that he is thus informing a congregation about the Word of God when he doesn't know it well enough himself to know that the Bible doesn't permit that sort of thing. Furthermore, you may notice, though, with me in quickness, that the Bible does make reference to the restraint of the Holy Spirit. Now, given that it does make reference to it, we might ask, so in what context does it appear, and in what way is it presented? As you and I close that slide, why don't we begin by making this interesting point. I have stated it like this. The Spirit of God, as you and I would well anticipate, does pursue the perfect will of heaven. It is the desire of the Holy Spirit to make known to the human family that which is the will of God and to, of course, encourage mankind to be obedient to that will. Whenever the human family fails in that light, it grieves the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4 verse 30. I would hope that each of us would at least reflect upon the seriousness of causing grief to the Holy Spirit. And we do that when we're disobedient, when we fail to follow that which is the revelation of the Spirit. We grieve Him. With that in mind, let's look at then several passages of Scripture that discuss the restraint of the Holy Spirit in at least one context or another. We'll start in the Old Testament. We'll begin in Genesis chapter 6. If you would wish to be revisiting that chapter with me, that of course is the well-known chapter that first brings before us the great flood of Noah's day. In Genesis chapter 6, it's verse number 3 that will capture our attention at least for a moment. Beginning in verse 1 it says, And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all that they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be in hundred and twenty years. We'll pause long enough to note this. There was a statement made early in verse 3. My spirit, God said, shall not always strive with man. Set before us is a very intriguing scenario in which God made observation that His Spirit was striving with man. Now that sounds like a contest. It sounds like a scenario in which God's Spirit, and the literal word in Hebrew means to contend with, God said, my spirit won't always contend, fight against, if you please, or restrain. We seemingly have come across a passage related in one way or another to the restraint of the Holy Spirit. As you and I seek to develop that further, could I pause at this point to say there have been many a scenario in which the human family has taken that passage and taught some fanciful things from it. By fanciful, let me just mention the main one that you and I might unfortunately have heard. I stopped reading at the end of verse 3. 
Verse 4 goes on to say, There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. What you may have encountered, and what some people have taken the liberty to teach, is that what you have here is a scenario when these sons of God married daughters of men, and out of them were born people who were giants. And they make the claim that these sons of God were angels. So they claim angels married humans, and out of that were born giants, those that were deformed in such a way. Please, may we each put that out of our mind. That's not what it teaches. Sons of God were not angels. Did Jesus say at one point when He was asked in Matthew 22, He was in fact asked about the characteristic of angels. He said they don't marry and they aren't given in marriage. Angels don't marry. This is no contest. It is no description of intercourse sexually between angels and the human family. That's not what it teaches. Sons of God were individuals who were given to the teachings of God those who had remained faithful to the line that had been begun, if you please, in Abel, faithful to the characteristic of Seth and Enos and those that followed. The daughters of men were wicked women. They were such that they were individuals who weren't given to the faithfulness of God. And all this teaches us is that there were some men who choose, chose poorly, faithful men otherwise who chose to marry a woman of the devil didn't marry someone who loved the way of God. And of course, out of that came wickedness. That which is wicked will always have tendency to influence more notably those who are faithful. And ultimately, it led to the disaster of Genesis 6. The earth became wicked, and the thoughts of men's heart was only evil continually. Genesis 6, verse 5. But perhaps in that light, we had, are invited to reconsider... God said, My spirit shall not always contend with man. As you and I note that more carefully, might I suggest that there's a passage in the New Testament which may offer us some interesting consideration of this. Holding your finger here, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. In verses 18 to 21 of that chapter, we have a passage that has occasioned no small discussion of consideration but it is one which seems that you and I can appreciate and interpret very easily. Beginning in verse 18, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also He went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. Pausing at that point, it's easy enough to give a quick consideration of what we just read. First of all, verse 18, Jesus suffered. He died on the cross. We understand that. But notice what it quickly says. He was put to death in the flesh... But he was quick, and that is to say, made alive by the Spirit. But verse 19, 
begins to offer the challenge. By which, now the word which, as of course a descriptive kind of pronoun, refers back to that word spirit. So by the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, Jesus went and preached into the spirits in prison. Who are these spirits? Verse 20. Which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. These spirits in prison were the people that were alive in Noah's day. And we know, again, they were unfaithful. Noah preached to them, but they didn't respond in faith, and thus... When the door of the ark was closed, they, they were drowned. They died. The text says, somehow, by the Spirit, Jesus preached to them. The idea that you may have often heard from this is, well, doesn't this then teach that after those folks had died, Jesus went and preached to them? And so after the time you die, so we're told, there apparently is still a time to hear the gospel and respond to it. That's not so. That's not what that teaches. That's not what that teaches. Once you and I pass from this life, all opportunities to respond to the faithful call of the gospel are gone. Remember when, the, when Lazarus and the rich man died in Luke 16? The rich man found himself in torment. He didn't have the opportunity to respond to a preacher. He didn't have the opportunity to hear preaching again. In fact, he pleaded. He pleaded. Please send Lazarus, he may cool my tongue, having dipped his finger in water. I'm tormented in this flame, Luke 16, 24. Notice this does not teach there's the opportunity to again obey once you die. What then does this teach? Let's put it back in a consideration of Genesis 6. And let's do so by observing this. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Who did the preaching? Well, you and I know Noah was a preacher of righteousness. 2 Peter 2 verse 5. And so you notice it doesn't say that Jesus Himself went personally. It says He went by the Spirit. That's what the text says. And therefore we appreciate the fact then that through the agency of Noah, as the Holy Spirit of God equipped Him to preach to those individuals of that day, it was the Spirit of God through Noah doing the preaching. That Spirit was animated by the character of the message, of course, surrounding Christ and God the Father. But note what verse 20 now says. When once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, those spirits in prison were well alive when Noah preached to them. They were dead at the time Peter was writing this. In fact, they had been dead in the Hadean realm for centuries. You and I might take note then, this text does not teach something like the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. It doesn't teach something like an individual can die lost and yet sometime thereafter come to again be saved. The Bible just doesn't teach that anywhere. Hebrews 9.27 says, As it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. He didn't say after this is preaching. He didn't say after this is opportunity. After this is judgment. Well, let's go further on our slide. Putting those two together, what might we appreciate? The Spirit is the agency through which Noah did that preaching. Notice it says, 
my spirit will not always strive with man. We learn this. God had a great deal of patience and long-suffering with those people. A hundred and twenty years He granted the preaching of Noah such that they would have opportunity to hear and respond favorably. But once the hundred and twenty years was up, the floodwaters came. My spirit won't always strive, contend with man. As they were disobeying the things that Noah was preaching, it was grieving the Holy Spirit. It was causing an element, of course, of disfavor because God wants all men to be saved, 1 Timothy 2.4. And they, unfortunately, were choosing to remain lost. People today are making that same choice. People today are making the exact same choice. The Word of God comes, and in powerful character of faith and truth, it says what we have to do to be saved. And sometimes, in fact, many times... There are those who still say, but, and they have some other idea. Something they consider a reason for not obeying. Let's close that slide like this. We find then here seemingly some particular restraint. Whereas the message of the Holy Spirit was given, that restraint brought to Noah what he preached. He preached the truth of God. He preached the unsearchable riches of what the Word of God made available. God had told Noah, there's coming a flood of waters despite the fact they'd never seen rain. They had never seen precipitation like that. And yet, Noah believed it was going to happen. And with conviction, he preached that same character and truth. That restraint as it motivated Noah to preach the way it did, that same message was unalterable. Sadly, those who heard chose not to obey. There's another example in the book of Numbers. This time in Numbers chapters 22 through 24. We certainly won't read all three of those chapters. But could I invite your consideration to at least a couple of the verses. In Numbers chapter 22, we have that very interesting scene of a man named Balaam. You and I remember him, and there are many things that might be said about him. But could I just call to your quick idea the following? In chapter 24, verse number 2, a simple statement is found. And Balaam lifted up his eyes, and he saw Israel abiding in his tents according to their tribes, and the Spirit of God came upon him. Now we might immediately ask, after the Spirit came on Balaam, what did it cause him to do, or what did he do as a result of that? Well, you and I, if we continue reading in that chapter, we will find that he spoke much about the blessedness that was going to be in Israel. He spoke much about the character of what it was like to be faithful servant to God and the way God would bless that group of people. To put all of that together, and to do so in a very quick way, could I ask you to note this? Balak had called Balaam and asked him to curse Israel. Curse them for me. They are mighty and they are strong and we do not want to have to battle them. You curse them. Balaam at first, of course, was very quick to say, I cannot do this. 
but he was motivated by money. He was motivated by covetous because he knew what that king could give him if he did what the king wanted. And so he did go, and that's when, of course, his donkey, knowing better than he, talked to him. But isn't it interesting that as he arrived, and we find here the Spirit of God came upon him. At the bottom, I've asked you to state it like this. In verses 18 and 20 of chapter 22, these phrases are found. Balaam answered and said unto the servants of Balak, If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. And then verse 20, God came unto Balaam at nine and said unto him, If the men come to call thee, rise up and go with them. But yet the word which I shall say unto thee, that shalt thou do. So when that Spirit of God came upon him, it would appear it equipped him to proclaim the things of God, to speak the matter which was the revelation of heaven. That leads us to say this conclusion. What apparently then is the restraint of the Holy Spirit? I've worded it this way. The restraint of the Spirit is such that it is what the Spirit allows and what the Spirit sets forth. And when one proclaims that, one is being restrained by the Holy Spirit. That's what Noah did. That's what Balaam in his better moments did. The restraint of the Holy Spirit then is connected to what the Spirit has revealed. It's connected to what the Spirit has made available. With that in mind, let's close that slide then in this way. It prepares us to ask about further applications of this idea. And let's jump into the New Testament. It's probably the case these are the verses that most readily come to our mind when we consider the phrase, the restraint of the Holy Spirit. There are several occasions in the book of Acts. I'd like us to at least look at some of these, reading them as we go. Let's begin in Acts 7 verse 51. It was at that time that Stephen, that rather notable and majestic preacher, found himself in dire straits. He delivered a masterful sermon, rehearsing the history of the Old Testament, and in fact, stirring the minds up of that group of people who were listening to what he said. And then in verse 51, he said, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hardened ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. May I ask, Stephen told that audience of people, you are always resisting the Holy Ghost. How were they doing this? It's evident, isn't it? As Peter preached the truth, the supremacy of Jesus Christ... And they had no interest in Christ. They had no interest in Him at all. When they were resisting Jesus, the message of Jesus, and what the Spirit had revealed through the Word of God, as having been preached by Stephen, they were resisting the Holy Spirit. Now that resistance of the Holy Spirit reminds us today we can then do exactly the same thing. But let's develop it in light of the word constraint. Remember, we're giving some thought to the restraint attached to the Holy Spirit. Look at Acts 13 too. We'll pull all these together in just a moment. 
In Acts 13, what did the Holy Spirit do? As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. Here the Spirit brought a message to the church at Antioch. You separate Barnabas and Saul to me for the work to which I've called them. Does that mean the Spirit was constraining that church in Antioch? Certainly it does. And you'll notice, separate, this was a direct commandment. That church was given no option. You set apart these two gentlemen for the work to which I've called them, and that work, of course, was going to be the first missionary journey. That particular work, then, was a rather remarkable thing. Notice the work of the Spirit in that regard. What about another one in that light? This time, Acts 13, 9. The text says, Then Saul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him, and said, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? How did Paul know the characteristics of the heart of that man, Elymas? He called him a child of the devil. He called him full of all subtlety full of all mischief. He referred to him as the enemy of all righteousness. Now, recently, Paul had just come to that place. He had never seen this man before. How did he know all those things? The restraint of the Holy Spirit had informed him through characteristic means of what this was. How about another example? This one is perhaps the most intriguing of all. Acts 16, verse 6. It was at this time, as that missionary journey proceeded, this is the second journey now. Verse 6 says, Now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, the Holy Spirit did not allow Paul to go into Asia at that time. That's what the text says. They were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia at that time. Now, Paul had intended to go there. He had intended to go and preach the word, and you and I might at first thought be amazed. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have preached in Asia? Why did the Holy Spirit not allow him to go there then? Look further in the same chapter. Verse number 7. After they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. They were wanting to go preach in Bithynia, but the Spirit said no. Here's a clear example of the restraint of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit did not permit Paul to go to those areas that he otherwise would have gone to and preach the gospel of Jesus. What was going on here? Well, you can notice on the slide, there appears to be some more information given to us later in Acts 21.10. As you turn over to that place, it simply reads as follows. And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, would you note with me, though Agabus was talking, where did he get the message? 
He said, the Holy Spirit is, is telling me this. The Holy Spirit is enabling me to say this. So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. In that case, the Spirit equipped a prophet named Agabus to express the restraint that Paul would experience. I would just offer to you this possibility. It could well be that a prophet also did the same thing in chapter 16. That restraint in which Paul was not allowed to go to Bithynia, had the Spirit restrain him? Maybe equipping a prophet to tell Paul, don't go there. Verse 6, how did the Spirit accomplish this forbidding to go into Asia? Maybe the equipping of a prophet that thus voiced that to Paul. You and I need not read into this something fanciful. It could merely be that the Spirit-equipped prophet to voice this thing to Paul. After all, that's exactly the way it was done in chapter 21. With all that in mind, could we then not say, this much appears certain. The restraint of the Holy Spirit occurs by linkage to the Word which the Holy Spirit had revealed. That's the way it was in Genesis. That's the way it was in Numbers. That's the way it was in Acts 21. Is there any reason to suspect that's not the way it was in these other examples in the book of Acts? For that reason, might you and I appreciate the restraint of the Holy Spirit is linked powerfully and linked exclusively to the Word which the Spirit has revealed. For you and I today, the Spirit does not restrain in any way other than by the Word which He has taught. And so that preacher that climbs into a pulpit and says, separate and apart from the Word of God, the Spirit has given me this message, that's nonsense. And that is unbiblical. And that's unscriptural. And that man ought to be ashamed for wasting the time of a group of people by making any such claim. But not only is the restraint of the Holy Spirit intriguing and interesting, why don't we close our lesson by making only a slight change in word. What about the constraint of the Holy Spirit? The constraint of the Holy Spirit, it too is an issue in the Word of God. As you can see, our study of it will be a very brief one because I think the idea is already bound up in some of what we've learned in the idea of the restraint of the Holy Spirit. We could begin in 1 Samuel 10 verse 1 where the Spirit of God came on Saul. What did it do to Saul? It constrained him to prophesy. And thus it equipped him to express what the idea of the Word of God to him was at that time. Notice again the linkage between that constraint and his voicing, his prophesying. And that word prophesy simply means to bubble forth with the thoughts of God, with the Word of God. Look at another example in 2 Chronicles 15.1. There, Azariah the prophet was such that the Spirit of God came on him, constraining him. What did it do to him? He spoke to the king and told him exactly what needed to be done. One more time, the constraint was linked to the word which the Spirit equipped him to say. Look at a third example in Acts 15, 28. 
This one's in the New Testament. When those first century Christians were motivated to say four things which the God of heaven has commanded, how did they know what those four things were? The text says it was linked to the Holy Spirit, and yet it was expressed as they voiceably and audibly expressed that to the people. All of that seems, again, so very powerful. The lesson text was chapter 18. I'm sure we all wondered when we were going to get there. In Acts 18, verse number 5, maybe this explanatory passage will sum up most everything we've learned tonight. Acts 18, verse number 5. On the second missionary journey, the following description is given. And when Silas and Timotheus, that's Timothy, were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. The text says, at least in the King James rendering, that he was pressed in the Spirit, seemingly suggestive of the fact he was moved and motivated. He was persuaded in spirit. But one thing to note with care, other translations express that like this, and in fact the Greek text reads it as constrained by the Word. To say that Paul was pressed in the Spirit is to say that he was constrained by the Word. That's what every example seemingly we've discussed has meant. When you and I today then appreciate the constraint of the Spirit is fully bound up in what the Spirit has revealed. He does not constrain separate and apart from this. He does not restrain separate and apart from this. For God is no respecter of persons, Romans 2.11. The Holy Bible is truly a fantastic gift from God. It fully expresses the very thought, the mind, the Word of God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work, 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. To say then that reproof, correction, exhortation, doctrine, all of it is here. And this is the means, the mechanism, by which the Spirit restrains your behavior and mine. It's the way He constrains our activity so that we might do what God would wish us and have us faithfully to do. The restraint of the Spirit is right here. And anybody who teaches otherwise, extending it beyond this, has erred, has asserted what the Spirit Himself has not affirmed that He shall do. As you and I close that slide, two other thoughts. In John 12, 48, Jesus speaking said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. That word that the Spirit then has made available, that the Spirit has revealed, is the very same word which shall exhaustively be used as the standard in judgment. If it's true 
that the Spirit equipped individuals speaking to them individually. So telling you something that He might not tell me or telling me something different than He would tell you, then that means at judgment this would not be adequate because the Spirit has given each of us something different. It would have to be this coupled with something else. The Bible doesn't teach this. Rather, it says this is sufficient for the judgment of one and all. And so it is. That also teaches us then that there is no especial working of the Spirit separate and apart from this book. The final thing on the slide, Romans 6.17 coupled with 2 Thessalonians 2.14. In that passage in 2 Thessalonians, we're all called by the gospel. There's no separate calling from that gospel. And furthermore, God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, and being made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. How was it delivered? He said they had obeyed the gospel, that word that had been delivered to them. How was it delivered? When Paul and the other preachers came, and preached to the church in Rome, Romans 1, verses 7 and following. That's the means by which it came. It didn't come separate and apart from what the Spirit had bequeathed to them to, to, to preach. As we close this lesson tonight, I've tried to summarize all of that on this slide. Whether it be the restraint or whether it be the concept of constraint of the Holy Spirit, there were occasions when especial prophets in former days, such as Azariah or Balaam, would bring those matters. But today, there are no people equipped in that way with prophecy. That gift has long since passed. Today, all of us have what the Spirit has given to one and all. May we be thankful for the Bible, the holy volume, that which is, expre is expressive of the revelation from heaven. As we've studied this series of the Holy Spirit, many of the lessons have in one way or another brought us back to what the principal gift the Spirit has brought to us, namely the Bible. May we faithfully study it and obey it, because it shall be opened at judgment, and we shall be standing before the message which it delivered. Tonight, as you and I examine ourselves, are we in the faith? 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Are we living in harmony with what the Spirit has sent forth? 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, Quench not the Spirit. You and I can quench it. That is to say, its effect in our life by failing to obey it. May we never quench it. May we utilize our abilities and our talents in faithful obedience to the God of heaven. If there would be anyone in the audience that would wish to make a public response to the gospel's call of invitation, it would be our desire to assist you, to help you. And if we could do that, we would wish to do it. We're going to stand and sing this song of encouragement. As we do that, it's a convenient and opportune time. If you are a person who once was a faithful child of God, but maybe as you have been persuaded by other things you've heard over the course of time, you've now come to realize that the Bible doesn't uphold what these things are that you've heard. And you'd like to rededicate your life in wholesomeness and in conviction to the devoted truth of the Word of God. We would like to pray to God on your behalf as you make observation of repentance and confession. 
If we could help you do that, don't delay. Why not come now while together we stand and while we sing?